This morning, we are going to read through and think about Psalm 51. Uh, you'll find it on the screen behind me, if you've got it with you. That's great. It'll be on the screen in front of you. Um, Psalm 51, before we read it, let's pray together. Oh God, again, as we open this book, we ask that you would, that you would calm our hearts. As we breathe deeply, uh, we pray that you would make yourself known through your word. Help us come to know you on a deeper level. In Jesus' name, amen. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not delight in, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. We'll go that far. So, Man, that's powerful. Um, 
sometimes I prepare something and then I'm like, I read the scripture um, behind what I'm about to prepare and I'm like, um, do I even need to talk? Um, I don't know that I need to speak. Um, so let's sing. Just kidding. Um, that's, that's just how I'm, I just have this deep feeling of what do I need to add to that. Um, but just for fun, let's just uh, let's let's go. We'll say some more. Okay. Um, one of the best ways I've found uh, to sort of grasp uh, the human condition. Um, I mean, to really get a handle on it, is to just throw, scroll through TikTok for a few minutes. Um, <laughs> really, that's all it'll take. Just scroll through TikTok for like a couple of minutes, and the human condition will be right there in front of you in all of its glory, uh, if we want to call it that. I mean, you scroll through, and it doesn't take you very long to find people doing really dumb things, like making super, super silly mistakes. To quote the great mid-90s rock band The Refreshments from their song Banditos, everybody knows that the world is full of stupid people. Right? Present company included. <laughs> Let's just be honest about that. We're not saying like everybody else is stupid and we're exempt. No, we're all, everybody knows the world is full of stupid people. Anyway, um, so we're going to talk about sin. <laughs> and before we, before we keep going, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not equating, I'm not saying what these people were doing was sinning. I'm not, I don't want you to make that equivalent there. Um, but it's just a, a really fun way for me to get into this idea of we all have accidents. Uh, we all fall. Uh, we all make dumb choices. We all make stupid, stupid mistakes. We all have those, it seemed like a good idea at the time, moments. And sometimes it's innocuous and no one really gets hurt. Um, but sometimes those mistakes, those choices we make, um, sometimes they, they cause real damage to our own lives, uh, to the relationships that we have in this world. And oftentimes when we talk about these mistakes, these accidents, we talk about them as they're just a reflection of our own imperfections. Uh, we, we think about verse 5 of this very psalm, and we think to ourselves, well, we were just born this way. It's a condition we have. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, I think that it's interesting to think about that idea, that we're all sort of born with this tendency to make a mess of things that it's just a, a condition we all have. Uh, sometimes we, we talk about it as original sin. Sometimes we talk about it as the sinful nature. Sometimes we talk about it as, you'll hear the phrase, total depravity. Sometimes you'll hear the phrase, the dark side. Sometimes we'll talk about it like that. It's a, it's a condition that we all find ourselves in. Right? But I think if that's the only way we talk about sin. We don't even like that word anymore. We don't like to say it. But if that's the only way we talk about it, then I think we're only getting things half right. If that's the only way we talk about sin, that it's just a condition that we have, then in reality, we can just kind of let ourselves 
we can just let ourselves off the hook, can't we? We can say to ourselves, well, we're just born that way. Like it's in our DNA. We have this phrase that we say, we're only human, right? We just, it's part of who we are. It's, it's really, it's our parents' fault. It's our parents' parents' fault. In fact, let's go all the way back down the line and get back all the way to Adam and Eve, and we could say, if they hadn't screwed things up, then we wouldn't have screwed things up. And so, you know, it's really their fault, and we can just kind of let ourselves off the hook. But then we read the Bible, and then we read the stories that it, that it lays out there for us. We read what it says about sin. We enter into the stories, and we find that people are really making a mess of their own lives and making a mess of the lives of the people they care about the most. And if we enter into those stories and we pay attention to them closely enough, sooner or later, we just have to come to the conclusion that sin is also, well, it's just the result of the choices that we've made. In other words, it's not just a condition we have. We also have a say in the matter. I mean, if we read the Bible, we find that God gives us the law to sort of create these good, healthy boundaries for us, and then we, we get to choose whether or not we're going to violate those boundaries. Sin isn't just the condition we have. It's not just part of our nature. Like, if that's the case, we just let ourselves off the hook. We have a choice in the matter. The classic case of this in the Bible is the story of, of David and Bathsheba. You familiar with this story? It's a horrible story. Like, it's one of the worst. It's a horrible, horrible story. So years after this psalm was written, we think an editor uh, later on attributed it to David after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba. Now, we don't know for sure if that's the case. We don't know for sure if David really wrote it, but it really doesn't matter because this story uh, fits well. And in case you're not familiar with the story, here's a little mini version of, of it. So there's King David. Um, he's king. He's the most powerful person in his world by a lot. He's on his rooftop, and he's looking over his entire kingdom. He's the king, all of it. He's looking at it all. It all belongs to him, right? He's the king. Sooner or later, his, his gaze sort of looks to the left, and he sees this woman, Bathsheba. She's bathing on her, on her rooftop. And uh, he doesn't think he has to help himself. He doesn't think he has to stop. He's, he's king. It all, belongs, it all belongs to him, right? So he has her brought to his palace, and uh, they have what some people call an affair. That's what some people call it. But if you read the story closely enough, and it doesn't take that much brain power to get there, is there's a power dynamic here. This was not a consensual thing, not in the least. Not if we're being honest about it. He rapes her. This is a story. This is a story about rape. And it's a horrible story that gets worse. She becomes pregnant. He freaks out. He tries to orchestrate things so that her husband Uriah comes back from war and 
was trying to get it to look like it's, it's his baby, but he remains faithful during wartime. This isn't supposed to be, you're not supposed to be with your wife. Uh, so he refuses, and it's not going to work out for David. So he sends him back to the front lines and essentially has him, has him killed. He, he, is, he orchestrates the murder, right? And there's no indication in the story that David even thought about touching his moral or ethical breaks. There's nothing in the story. He decided to listen to his own heart. He decided to listen to, to his own voice. There's no indication that he even thought about asking or consulting the divine or anybody else in his community. Hey, do you think this is a good idea? Because he knew if he did that, he'd have to stop. So he didn't. And his lust just got the better of him. Horrible. It's, it's one of the worst stories. Right. Sometime later, the prophet Nathan comes, confronts David about him and his actions, and now the powerful king is convicted, the powerful king is now vulnerable, and now these words are the words that are attributed to coming out of, out of his heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions after what David did. He has the audacity to ask God for mercy. After what David did, he has the guts to ask for forgiveness. Think about it. It's amazing, isn't it? He rapes Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. Eventually, to cover it up, he participates in the murder of her husband, Uriah. And he has the guts. He has the audacity to ask for forgiveness. Wow. Now, I don't know I don't, what I want to say is that David just understood that the heart of God is what defines love, that David understood what that, that the heart of God defines what compassion is, defines what mercy is, defines what grace is. And I, I believe that, but it's, it's hard for me because I'm like, David, you did that, and you're asking for forgiveness. It, it's more likely he's like, I got nothing left. I got no way out of this. This is my last option, so I'm just going to ask for it. You know, whether he believed it or not, I don't know. So there's this Hebrew word. It's called rechem. It's what gets translated into uh, the phrase great compassion or mercy. And listen to what Richard Rohr says about this. God's very being is determined by rechem 
which is mercy, loving kindness, compassion. Translations of the Hebrew most carefully connect rechem with the feminine word for womb. God's way of being poured out in the world is womb love. He goes on to say that over and over again in the scriptures, story after story after story, instead of the people being cast aside for their evil ways, a subversion takes place in God's own heart. God's compassion flares up. I love that phrase. God's compassion flares up, and God decides not to execute God's burning wrath. Mercy is Victoria, victorious over justice in God. Mercy doesn't trump justice. It transcends it. Mercy is the profound mystery of who God is. Mercy is the profound mystery of who God is. Friends, our understanding of prayers like this is that it's a prayer that God routinely answers over and over and over again. Maybe David did understand it. If he did, it was probably only because the prophet Nathan got to him and made him understand. Because all of the other gods and goddesses of their time, we talked about it last week, you had to do all sorts of things. You had to do all sorts of actions and sacrifices in order to gain the favor of the gods. But it seems that David, David understood that God is full of mercy. That mercy is a fundamental characteristic of the divine. David understood the gospel before there was anything called the Christian gospel. Because that's part of the good news that we believe, right? That through Jesus, we're forgiven. That our connection with God, our relationship with God is just restored forever. That's how it works. It's gift. It's grace. The consequences of our sins aren't necessarily erased. If you read the rest of David's story, he suffers for his choices. Absolutely. And yet, God still offers grace. God still offers mercy. God still offers forgiveness, even after what David did. It's astounding. Now, I think it's, it's important for us to understand what kind of forgiveness we're talking about here. Right? We're not talking about the kind of forgiveness that just sort of lets us off the hook. It would be something like this. You're speeding, you get a ticket, and then they tell you, never mind, I'm going to rip the ticket off. You're, you're free to go. So it lets us off the hook. Or you get, after the ticket, you get a call from your insurance company and they say, we're not going to raise your rates. Okay, so that's letting us off the hook. We're not talking about that kind of forgiveness. We're not talking about the kind of forgiveness that just simply makes us feel better. And that would go something like this. Someone does something to hurt you in a way that's, that's you just don't like it. It's terrible. It's, it's really heartbreaking. And instead of holding that over their heads and using it as a way to sort of manipulate them in some way, instead of holding it over the per person's head, you just essentially walk away from the relationship. You sever it. You just don't worry about it anymore. You let it go. You don't make them pay. 
right? They don't owe you anything, but the relationship is just done. So we're not talking about that kind of forgiveness. Oh, I don't have to worry about that one anymore. We're talking about a whole different realm here. We're talking about a a deeper, more robust sense of forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that, that transforms, that changes you. So it goes above and beyond the other kinds of forgiveness, and it transforms the heart of the person who messed things up in the first place. So this kind of forgiveness isn't just letting you off the hook. It's not just about cleaning the slate so that we can feel better about ourselves. It isn't about, it isn't about forgiveness so that one day we can just get to heaven someday. God erases our debt, and instead of walking away, God remains in relationship with us. Paul would say it later, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God comes to us, becomes one of us. And God's betting that the restoration of that relationship, the experience of that kind of grace, of that kind of forgiveness, of the restoration of that relationship will be a transformative thing for us human beings. And then we're invited to live into that transformation. Like David, verse 13, he's talking about a change in his own heart, a change in his own life. He's going to be different now. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He's talking about living a new kind of life, a life transformed. Barbara Brown Taylor suggests that forgiveness isn't really accepted and lived into until it leads to the Christian practice of penance. Have you heard that word before, penance? Like Catholics are, are good at this. Think of it as a set of actions that leads to the restoration of community, a set of actions that leads to the restoration of relationships. Listen to what Barbara Brown Taylor says. She says this, just for a lark, imagine going to your pastor, imagine this, imagine going to your pastor and confessing your rampant materialism, your devotion to things instead of people and your isolation from the poor whom Jesus loved. Picture yourself confessing with tears all those things that you have done to rip the fabric of your community. Then, imagine being forgiven and given your penance, which is this. Select five of your favorite things, including perhaps your Bose radio and your new coach book bag. Match them up with five people who you know would turn cartwheels to have them. Then on Saturday, put your lawnmower in your trunk, drive down to that transitional neighborhood where all the old people live, and offer to mow lawns for free until dark. Notice that none of this is standard punishment. None of it is designed to inflict pain on yourself. Instead, it's penance which is for the purpose of showing that your life is now turned around and that you are now devoted to repairing relationships, restoring community. You're living out forgiveness 
living a new life, a life transformed. I think that's kind of what next week is about, too. This community pride worship. Because we've been a part of a system, an organization that has done so, so, so much damage to the LGBTQ community. And this is our opportunity to repent, to turn around, and to stand in solidarity with, right? This is a way that we live out a life transformed. We're going to be different now. So sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's good for us to sort of pay attention to the dents and dings that we have as a, as a result of our reckless and thoughtless living. Sometimes it's good to actually pay attention to our sins. And I know that might seem dark and weird, but I think it's necessary. Because if you had a mole on your back that turned black and grew gnarly and big, you'd go to the doctor and have them remove it. It just makes sense, right? If we're willing to do that with our bodies, isn't it make sense for us to do that with our whole lives? I think so. So, so I think it's a good thing to pay attention to those things. And then to have the audacity to ask for forgiveness. To lean into God's grace to lean into the radical forgiveness of God. And if we do, we might just experience forgiveness and actually live into it and live a transformed life. I don't know. Let's put some thought into it. Let's pray.